For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The fourth iteration of Oklahoma City's Metropolitan Area Projects plan passes in a landslide. More than 70% of voters support the extension of the penny sales tax to raise nearly $978 million for 16 projects. Neva, are you surprised by the wide margin of victory for MAPS? Well, I think uh, I think everyone is pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. that supported uh, MAPS. And when you really look at that number, it is it is pretty staggering. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, 55% for the first MAP, 61 on the second, 54% on the third, and now 72% uh, for MAPS 4. I mean, that clearly shows... Uh, the momentum and the efforts that were made to pass this uh, have gone a, a long way since the first map was, maps was passed in 1993. So, you know, I applaud the efforts of Mayor Holt and everyone that was involved. Turnout was disappointing, mm-hmm. uh, although 13.5%. I mean, some people were concerned that it might have even been a lower number than that. So there was an intensive effort to get uh, mobilization of voters all across Oklahoma City, uh, from the northeast to the to the southeast and southwest and northwest, all, all quadrants. No, no one was really left out of this uh, election in terms of really trying to get them to identify with the projects that were on the board and to uh, support them in the manner that they did. Ryan, this really had no opposition either. No, no opposition. I mean, the opposition that was there initially was the, the judicial case against it, the legal mm-hmm. case against it. When that failed, there seemed to be really no organized campaign against it. Um, but I, you know, I, it is a, uh, even without an opposition campaign to garner that much support is incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, congratulations to Mayor Holt, all of the members of the city council, and in particular, those members of the city council and, and even members of the county commission, uh, like folks like Commissioner Bloomert, who really made sure that this was a people first map project. I mean, the, the investment in the people of Oklahoma City is really what sets this maps proposal apart. Um, and I think that this was a, a referendum on maps in, in particular. I mean, if you look back at maps three, even what was that 54% you said 54% it wasn't a popular proposal and if you know when you think about if uh, there's some suggestion that maybe maps was losing its steam you know maybe this would be the last one especially if it just kind of inched across the finish line there was even some talk that if there had been an opposition campaign to this that it could have sunk it that it could have failed i mean that, those were some real concerns even by the proponents so to see it pass with such an overwhelming majority, I think, sets the stage for continued uh, reinvestment in uh, Oklahoma City. This won't be the last maps now. I mean, this this really, I think, sets up the stage for future investments. Well, and I think this is also the passing of the baton, as mm-hmm. they described it, the maps generation. This was a younger, more diverse uh, uh, group, uh, even at the watch party, very different from uh, uh, watch parties of the past. And I think it does, uh, I think it does indicate that we have not only a, a kind of a transformational uh, change going on in the city of Oklahoma City, but we are seeing in, a, in the leadership style of Mayor Holt and the and the other folks that are much younger on the on not only the city council, but the board of county commissioners and other elected officials, that they really are engaged in trying to broaden the, uh, uh, the reach uh, to the voters on projects that heretofore might not have been singularly popular, but in this package, they were able to convince uh, the voters that they would continue uh, to do what they've done with the with the previous three maps, 
maps, and that is follow through, deliver what they say was in the proposals, were in the projects, and do them on time and on budget. And I think that that, that has bred the success that we see now. Right. You have an entire generation of kids who have never lived in an Oklahoma City without maps. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's important. I think that, you know, creating this narrative that, that you know, we, we live in a, in a political environment where often taxes are, are demonized and taxes are bad. And, you know, maps gives us this opportunity to really talk about what taxes are and their, their investments in our, in our people and investments in our services. You know, just a couple of quick things. You know, first, if you overlay the turnout with House districts, House District 88 and House District 85, both, you know, progressive, Democratic-leaning House districts had big turnout. And I think that that really, you know, demonstrates some of the shift that's happening politically in Oklahoma City. But we also are now recognizing that more and more decisions, whether it's city council, county commission, uh, or even referendums at the local level, this is where decisions are making, being made. We see a lot of gridlock in Washington. We even see some gridlock uh, similar to that in our state capital. We don't see that as much at the local level. And so as these decisions are going to be made more and more at the local level, we've got to do something to make sure that turnout increases in the future. The Pardon and Parole Board is keeping busy this year as docketed cases have increased 118%, jumping from a little more than 3,000 in 2018 to nearly 7,000 in 2019. Pardon cases are up 76%, parole cases 39%, and commutations increasing a whopping 426%. Ryan, what's going on here? I mean, part of this is you know we're seeing uh, administrative parole, we're seeing uh, retroactive application of state question 780 through things like House Bill 1269, but also what we're seeing in addition to those criminal justice reforms is this is what a pardon and parole board looks like. It's it's not it's not just a blanket no on everyone. I mean, we're seeing that this is a board that's really considering these cases and they're doing it without any additional resources. I mean, this is a this is a Allegedly, a part-time uh, public service uh, on behalf of these board members, these five board members. But you know, somebody in the in the paper they refer to it almost as a as a half-time job. I think it's probably even more than that. I mean, it's you know the the amount of time that it takes to really study these cases and to make thoughtful, informed decisions is a real burden on on the members of the board. The legislature this session needs to recognize that this is what a pardon and parole board looks like. It's an integral part of any sort of a criminal justice uh, reform system or process that's going to actually decarcerate people, get people out of Oklahoma's prisons. They probably need some more funding and resources over there. Neva. Well, it is interesting talking about funding and resources because the executive director did make uh, did make those very points, Ryan, in terms of saying that that it was uh, close to a, a halftime job. When you look at the uh, the the amount of time that this five member board takes monthly to review these pardon and parole and commutation requests, and then uh, the the meetings typically last for several days. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a this is a process that uh, does take a lot of time, and frankly. He's advocating that uh, to to ensure independence of the board, that they should be paid at a fair market value, so that uh, uh, so that that process continues. So it'll be interesting to see what the uh, interest is in in that dialogue with the legislators. I think in the uh, discussion about budget, I mean, it was uh, to me a little bit fascinating that the budget request was only uh, a little over two million uh, for the upcoming fiscal year, uh, as far as uh, uh, the uh, it was actually. A slight decline over the current fiscal year, I think, as it turned out. Which, uh, when you look at the look at uh, what's going on over there, I think you've got this philosophy, at least, that's being espoused, that says that what we don't need is more uh, uh, headcount. We need need more automation. So, what they do, techno, you know, from a te- 
technology standpoint to uh, enhance their ability to streamline some of some of these processes and procedures is going to be critical and can they get that done quickly uh, that's going to be the thing I think everyone's going to watch very carefully are there other states that have a full-time paid pardon oh absolutely board? yeah I mean you you see that in other states where they are are, are paid full-time professional pardon and parole board members and that's that's just what they do that's their occupation you know I I mean ultimately I mean some of these members of the pardon and parole board they do such a, an amazing job and they've really become experts in this. They have full-time day jobs. It's kind of hard to believe yeah. that. And, um, you know, so I, I think that you know, if we're going to get serious about getting people out of prison that, you know, maybe years ago as a matter of policy and law, we thought that, you know, the best thing to do is lock these folks up for a long time. But now we're reconsidering whether or not there's really a benefit to the state for doing that. We got to get them out. And the way we get them out is, is right now, at least through the pardon and parole board, you know, I would encourage the lawmakers as they begin to think about, other future reforms and how those may be made retroactive, that there are processes where we can really rely on automation and we don't have to rely so much on individualized hearings. It's like we know that the crime uh, that they committed ought not be a crime today, and so why are they there? And you know, should there really be this whole review process um, and you know, just automatically applying retroactivity in some of these cases? I think it would be something for the legislature to consider. And, and I think there will be some pushback from the legislature on that point. I think the 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 general consensus that that you hear most often is that there is a there is a process, there is a need for review. While these uh, while we're seeing a lot of change in in the process and in a and much of this criminal justice reform and the impact it's having, particularly here on pardon and parole and the board, uh, that there it's not just going to be kind of this you know this seismic swing where it will be automation and just a, a kind of a, a routine paper trail for lack of a better description and I think I think that that's where the rub's going to be with some of these lawmakers that have seen this process go kind of full you know kind of the, the full pendulum swing back and forth and they are going to want to make sure that uh, uh, that they can be accountable because they are you know they are going to have to go back and uh, uh, explain to the voters you know what they're doing in terms of these pieces of legislation that are going to be before them in the coming mm -hmm. session so to have this kind of oversight board we've got to make sure that they're paid that's right and I think and I think the professional board versus a, a a board that is willing to commit the time and and service and and certainly probably needs uh, needs fair compensation to do that but to make them just uh, another layer of professionals within the government bureaucracies to uh, uh, to deal with pardon and parole I, I think that's going to be a lively debate when we mm -hmm. uh, get it in the legislative arena Governor Sid is extending the deadline for his criminal justice task force, the Reentry, Supervision, Treatment, and Opportunity Reform Task Force, also known as Restore, is getting until January 10th to finish up its work rather than the end of December. Neva, why this short extension? Well, according to the governor, they wanted time for one more public meeting, a time to go ahead and finish up and uh, write the final report. They're really his his extension was one month. Uh, seems almost uh, uh, a little uh, a little short in, in length if you're going to extend, you would think it might have been even a little longer leading up to the legislative session, but they, they clearly have done a lot of work uh, and are trying to wrap it up quickly, but have fallen uh, fallen up against this uh, original deadline and the governor kind of giving them a little bit of a reprieve and time to get through the holidays, get through the process and be able to have that on his desk by January 10th.
Right. I mean, it'd be really interesting to see what they come up with. I mean, you know, I, you know, kudos to the folks serving on, on the task force. But, you know, unlike Governor Fallon's criminal justice task force, this one doesn't really have any experts in the room analyzing data, coming up with uh, evidence-based solutions. And I, while I say that, we don't know a whole lot about it because they're not complying with the Open Meetings Act. They've had one public meeting, but that meeting was at a satellite office in Tulsa. And, you know, the, 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 the audio quality was really terrible. It was hard for people to hear. It was a packed room. And that was mainly anecdotal stories about failures in the criminal justice system, important to talk about, but wasn't really evidence-based or solutions-based. And so we don't really know what kind of solutions are going to come out of this task force. So one more public meeting, you know, hopefully that meeting would comply with the Open Meetings Act so that we've got a little bit more notice. And then even if there's not an opportunity to be there, there's a record of what actually happened at that meeting. Well, and I think, I think as the governor has indicated all along, being, a, being very supportive of criminal justice reform and saying he is going to roll out uh, some of his own plan in the upcoming legislative uh, session and probably his state of the state, it will be interesting to see, does it incorporate much of the conversation from this task force or others that he's been interacting with now for months on this subject? And how bold will his initiatives be? Will they be things that have been talked about and talked about and now he's going to kind of put his you know his uh, stamp on it or will it be something really kind of outside the box that uh, that he's uh, uh, come to uh, learn about from other states or other experts uh, maybe around the country that he's been talking with I think I think it's going to be interesting to see what he really comes up with and whether this plan that the governor has is something that the legislature will embrace well and you know you mentioned other other groups I mean th- this restore task force isn't the only one operating out there. There's the reclassification council that was created by the legislature. And I think that it's, you know, that has been open. You have been able to, you know, be a part of those conversations. The lack of transparency around restore has led some people to believe, uh, you know, just speculation, but that the reclassification council is going to use the restore task force as a means to introduce uh, or a launch pad to introduce some sort of a legislation that would be intended to undermine the sentence enhancement reform that's included in state question 805 and to use that to create some sort of a seal of approval for a an attack on this ballot measure and to try to keep it from uh, having the the kind of weight that we see whenever it goes to the ballot because i mean the, I, they're going to get the signatures and it'll likely be on the ballot we saw that with state question 780 and state question 781 the legislature tried to preempt those by putting out a watered down version of what was in 780 uh before the legislature and it just you know, some of it passed, but then it was ultimately superseded by a stronger law mm-hmm. in state question 780. I think that there's a there's a concern right now that the, the restore task force may be a launch pad for some similar strategy against state question 805. The state Democratic Party extends its policy of allowing independents to vote in primary elections. Democrats started this in 2016 and recently told the state election board they would continue into next year and 2021. The Republican and Libertarian parties are keeping their primaries closed so only members of their party can vote. Ryan, has this policy helped the Democrats? Absolutely, I think it has. And I I think that... I think it's a healthy policy. I think that you know the the state Republican Party would be wise to consider it, it also. I mean, we're we're living in a in a two party system, and the the two party system only exists because we have rules and procedures that allow that two party system to maintain its monopoly uh, politically. I mean, if we had 
you know, things like proportional representation or ranked choice voting, we would see a proliferation of political parties in the state of Oklahoma. But right now you've got to fit into these, you know, two very uh, broad categories that, uh, that a lot of Oklahoma voters don't feel entirely at home at, which is one of the reasons that we've seen such a spike in increased uh, independent registration. And so we see this very you know, rapidly growing number of, of registrants, and I think it's the, the fastest growing number of registrants in the state of Oklahoma are independents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they need a home in these primary elections, otherwise they don't have a voice. And I, I think it makes sense for Democrats to give them the opportunity to participate in those primaries. I would hope that in the future that Republicans do the same as well, just so that we don't leave huge numbers or growing numbers of Oklahomans out in the cold in these crucial decision, uh, decision-making elections, because a lot of elections are, aren't, aren't determined in November. They're determined in the summer uh, in the primaries. Neva. Well, I think uh, in, in terms of uh, the Democrats opening their primaries, I mean, it's still not clear how many independents have voted in those Democratic primaries uh, since 2016. And I think uh, some would take exception with the state Democratic Party chairwoman's uh, assessment that the uh, independent voters in Oklahoma tend to be, as she described them, left-leaning. I, you know, I think historically we We've seen that uh, independents are exactly that. They've been all over the board. They have uh, they've trended both uh, uh, t- toward Republican and Democrat uh, candidates in elections. So I don't I don't think it's uh, it's there's any real evidence at this point, kind of that uh, that the Democrats uh, have really enhanced their uh, primary process by including the independents. And and when you talk about numbers, Ryan, I mean 330,000 independents in the state of Oklahoma, but we have over a million Republicans and seven. 140,000 Democrats, so it is still a two-party process, and I think that uh, uh, what we what we see is that uh, the parties uh, and the individuals in those parties that have a direct stake in in selecting their nominees want that want that process to continue. And some states that have what they call the jungle primaries, which basically is you put all of the all of the candidates in one race, and the kind of the survival of the fittest. I don't think there's any appetite among Democrats or Republicans or independence in Oklahoma to to go that direction. So I think that I think we'll see uh, in the uh, 2020 uh, election cycle with the presidential campaign whether whether this really uh, influences the uh, the Democrat primaries or not. It'll be fascinating to watch. Well, if we've got these conservative independents out there, shouldn't the Republican Party maybe think about opening up their their primaries so well, that these independents? Yeah, I don't think there's been any. I, I don't think there has been an interest in doing that. I think independents that want to uh, uh, want to register independent knowing that they will not uh, be involved on the Republican side in, in primaries, but will be afforded the opportunity to weigh in in a Democrat primary if they want. I, I think that's where the party, uh, in, in, and I think this is true when you look at it nationally, this is still the perspective that uh, that is kind of the political process that's in play. So those that advocate for the kind of this wider, you know, kind of free-for-all, uh, just let everybody get in and let's see what happens, uh, that process doesn't really, uh, I think, uh, bode well, certainly here in Oklahoma, to have much, uh, have much uh, support. A state lawmaker introduces bills designed to tackle the issue of domestic violence. Measures by Norman Republican Senator Rob Standridge puts domestic assault on the list of 85% laws, refers accusers to intervention programs, and increases the penalty for domestic abuse by strangulation. Neva, what do you think of these measures? Well, I think these are certainly bills that are going to get a lot of attention and a lot of traction. And, and frankly, I mean, it's legislation that's overdue. I mean, I mean the statistics validate it. And, this, and the stories here in Oklahoma, I mean, when you really look at, uh, you know, where we've been, 
been, the numbers are not good. I mean, with with respect to uh, domestic violence, and we need to we need to change that. And and so I think as uh, Senator Standridge has had uh, his town hall meeting uh, earlier this week, and and other input and and involvement from uh, folks that have been directly impacted by domestic violence, uh, there's just story after story after story, as well as statistic after statistic that uh, shows that this is something the legislature really needs to step up, take seriously, and address very quickly in the upcoming legislative session. Ryan. I mean, yeah, you hear these these stories of, of domestic violence, and you hear from the survivors, and, and they're incredibly tragic, and I think that all of us want to do something about it. I think that the idea that longer prison sentences um, are are the solution just doesn't really uh, acknowledge the facts. I mean, I think it may make us feel better, right? I mean, we can just like shake our fist at these at these people that have done these awful things uh, to to people and and feel better about it. But if our goal here is to actually reduce the cycle of violence or to end the cycle of violence and to protect survivors and to make sure that there are fewer people that suffer from domestic violence in the future. Longer prison sentences just don't actually do it. It's it's a, actually uh, you know these longer prison sentences in many instances make things worse. You know stigma, isolation, desperation, and shame are the chief drivers for criminal behavior. And if you think we give people that uh, in in large doses whenever they go to prison, they've got stigma, isolation, desperation, shame, uh, and then we are you know uh, you know shaking our heads and confused while they come out of prison and act as violent, if not more violent than they did before. You know, one of the other things that I think is important is that we know this, and we know this for a fact, that increasing the stakes for punishment actually reduces the instances of domestic violence reporting. You know, so if you're a survivor, you're, you're, you're currently being uh, a victim of, of domestic violence, if you think that you know, calling the police means more than just separating you from the perpetrator or getting, the perp- getting you help and protection, but it means that you know, maybe the breadwinner or somebody is going to have to go to prison for, you know, 10, 15 years, um, then you're less likely to call and report them because what you need is safety, sanctuary, and, and, and help. Uh, and instead what you get is the police coming in and ripping somebody away from their family. Maybe they need to be ripped away from their family, but in that way, a lot of people just underreport. And so these are well-intentioned bills. I think everybody's heart is, in, is entirely in the right place here. I just want to make, I just hope that legislators moving forward uh, think about maybe some unintended consequences of increasing uh, prison terms for for crimes like well, this. Well, I think what I think in that in that dialogue, and I think there has to be a dialogue. And even Senator Standridge said in in the bills that he has uh, structured that he's open to conversation. I mean, if there are things that need to be uh, things that need to be addressed or or ways that the bills can be tweaked, it's certainly that process is still you know open. But when you have over 20 years in Oklahoma, you have almost 1,700 uh, victims that have died because of domestic violence. It is a concern, and I think uh, sending a clear message, however that's done legislatively, and there'll be a, I think there'll be a very vigorous and lively debate on this because there are different schools of thought, but there does need to be, uh, there does need to be a very um, uh, constructive and and very uh, strong look at, at these issues. They've come up before and certainly have been even looked at legislatively before and and uh, sometimes addressed and sometimes not. But in the in the era of all of the criminal justice reform and all that is going on, this is certainly a very significant valid issue that needs to be uh, given its time and attention. I was struck by the intervention programs. Instead of just go, instead of just throw away the key, or lock them up and throw away the key, there did seem to be at least some effort in these bills to maybe try to reform some of these people and say to maybe break the the cycle of violence. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's important. I mean, I I mean I, I don't disagree at all 
uh, and everything that Neva's saying about the problem in Oklahoma. I mean, the the problem is there, and and I think that we can we can point to a number of reasons that that make Oklahoma uh, unfortunately a leader uh, in that area. But uh, leaving leaving those aside, I, I think that we should really think that whatever solution we're putting out there isn't just a solution that says, you know, we've done something, but it's a solution that actually uh, leads to some results that we can say, you know, this is progress instead of just, we did this. And then, you know, three years from now say the numbers haven't really gone down or maybe they have gone down, but are we really just seeing underreported crimes rather than a reduction in crimes? Mm-hmm. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management.